Thank you, Ryan. Um, you know, if there are two or three college athletes or people who want to get involved in that, a uh, great way to serve. Uh, if you want to talk to the folks that, uh, yeah, talk to Ryan if you have any questions. Uh, the folks with whom he worked and ministered are, are here on home assignment for a few months. So if you have any questions, uh, I'm sure they would love to meet with you. I uh, would love to uh, answer any questions that you might have about um, what that summer trip could look like. A few years ago, um, yeah, it was a few years ago, my, my uh, best friend was getting married, and so he had a, a bachelor party in Las Vegas. <laughs> Las Vegas, I don't know what you think about when you think of Vegas, but um, Vegas is called Sin City right? for, uh, for good reason. Uh, we tried not to sin. Uh, we didn't you know, intentionally go to places where there was sin. But when I think of Vegas, I think of, and probably when you think of Vegas, you think of uh, shows or restaurants or buffets or hotels. But when I think of Vegas, I think of the casinos. That's what I, that's what I think of. I think of lights and glitz and glamour and all these things. And I, um, you know, I'd heard a lot about the casinos and how they try and, and, and psychologically use all of these things to, to take your money, basically. And so um, I was doing some research and I found out some of the things that they do. And I think for most people who go to the casinos, you understand that they don't have clocks there. Uh, this is pretty common knowledge. Because they don't want you to look at the clock and realize, holy cow, I've just spent 15 hours uh, when I was only supposed to spend 15 minutes here at this casino. And I've lost all of my money and I've got nothing left. There are no clocks in, in casinos in Vegas. Also, there are no windows. So you can't look outside and, and see, okay, the sun is coming up and it's, it's dawn and now the sun is going down and it's, it's dusk. And they don't have windows so you can't tell what time of day it is. So it always seems like it's daytime. The ambient lighting of the place, it, it kind of uh, rises and falls and dims and brightens at weird times so that even if it's four in the morning, it makes it seem like it's daytime so that you lose all sense of time so that you keep on pulling money out of your pocket so that they can keep on taking your money. And by the time you leave Vegas, you have no money to make a phone call home, right? So this is the way they do things. There's bathrooms in the casinos and in the hotels, but in order to find them, you have to walk through multiple different mazes and labyrinth-like places in order to finally find the bathroom. And as you're trying to exit, uh, you have to walk back through that labyrinth so that you have to walk through all of these temptations to just play one more game in order to lose the rest of the money that you don't have on your credit card before you end up making it out of that casino. There's a lot of things that these casinos do. At the slot machines, uh, they're famous for giving you little payouts. You put in some money and you get your $5, you get your $10 win. You're just one seven away, one cherry away, one whatever thing it is away from hitting the jackpot. And so you have this sense of hope, this false sense of hope that I can do it, that I can win it. And so you keep on playing those slot machines. And one of the lasting images that was seared in my mind every night as I walked through the casinos from one place to another to get to my hotel, to get to where I'm going, two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, whatever hours of the day, I remember seeing old people, very old people, white hair, no hair, parked in front of these slot machines putting in money, pulling down the arm of that one-armed bandit, putting in money, pulling down the arm, people in wheelchairs, war veterans with veterans of war jackets on, just parked in front of that for hours, 
allured by the false hope that somehow with a stroke of fortune, my life could be changed for the better. Everything broken in my life could be made well by just one stroke of good luck. Welcome to Vegas, an ordinary day in Vegas, Sin City, where people come with hopes and dreams of getting out of this miserable estate that they call their lives, to get freed from this brokenness, to get freed from this baggage, which is one moment in time that could change everything for me, only to wheel themselves back, having lost everything. The dream, the illusory dreams of quick cash, of fast money, escaping their hands as they go back even more destitute and broken than they were before. Welcome to Las Vegas, an ordinary day in Vegas. The Bible talks about a place like this also. It's not Vegas, it doesn't have slot machines, but a place where the broken would gather with one singular hope that today could be the day where my fortunes change, that in one fortuitous act of fate, everything could be changed and all of my brokenness could be healed. This place, the Bible says, is called the Pool of Bethesda. Let's look at John chapter 5. I want to look at an ordinary day at a place called Bethesda where people came with the same hope and dream and longing and allure of hope that Vegas affords to so many people today. This is John chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. This is the Word of God, a true account of something that happened 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem in a pool called Bethesda. This is God's Word. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of people, disabled people, used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat. And walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. But later Jesus found him at the temple and said, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. This is God's word. We see here at the pool of Bethesda a very similar thing that we see at Vegas. A conglomeration of the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, the broken. And granted, not everyone at Vegas comes in order to satisfy their brokenness. They come for a lot of different reasons. 
But we see in that picture, when I, when I envision my trip to Vegas and I think about those elderly people, I see them at the Pool of Bethesda. The Pool of Bethesda was a place where the broken and the down and out, the last, the least, the lost of the society would gather together and they would hang out there, a cesspool of human brokenness, waiting for the day that maybe my fortunes could be changed. The difference between Vegas and Bethesda, Vegas, if Vegas is Sin City, Bethesda means the house of mercy. And it's on this ordinary day in Bethesda when people who would hang out and spend their every day waiting for, hoping for, longing for something, that Jesus would come and meet them. You see, the pool of Bethesda is a picture of our world, a picture of our brokenness, a picture of broken, hurting people. And into that place, Jesus comes. What do we see? How do we experience healing. For these people, it was just a normal day. And for us, it's just a normal day where we gather at the pool of Bethesda, people who are hurting, people who are lame, people who feel like we can't go on, people who feel like our dreams are stifled, longing for a hope to heal us of this brokenness. How do we find healing from Jesus? This passage shows us a few things that I want to point out here. The first thing, first thing, healing begins when you get sick, when you're sick of being sick. Jesus comes to this man, he's paralyzed, and it's clear as day that he's ill. He's been an invalid, Jesus learns, from people, from him, from whomever, that he's been in this condition, paralyzed for 38 years. He lies on a mat because that's his life. He can't get up, he can't move, he can't go to the bathroom, he stinks. This is his condition. He's been like this for 38 years, and Jesus walks up to him, and he asks this simple question, do you want to get well? I have always, you know, when I was a kid, thought this was a a funny question. You see someone who's been in this condition for 38 years, and he says, do you want to get well? You see someone who's been unhappy. He's been sad for 38 years of his life. And Jesus walks up to him and says, do you want to be happy? It seems almost cruel to me. You see someone who's, who's sick. They've been coughing, and they've been coughing for 38 years. Hey, do you want to get better? To me, on the surface, it seems like this is the strangest question, but I realize that this can't be a dumb question. You know why? Because the same reason we all know. The first reason, because when you grew up in elementary school, the first thing you learned when you raised your hand and put your hand back down was a teacher said, there's no such thing as a dumb question. But the second reason is because it's Jesus asking this question, and Jesus doesn't ask dumb questions. If we don't, then Jesus doesn't. So what's behind this question? Could it be? that there's a whole lot more to it than this. Jesus is not simply asking a question of, do you physically want to get well? He's probing beneath the surface and getting down to the heart of it, and he's saying, do you physically, as a matter of the will, do you want to get well? Because you could, I could talk to a million people, hey, listen, your marriage is not doing well. Do you want your marriage to be healed? I don't think there's a single person whose marriage is falling apart who would say, no, I don't want my marriage to get better. I want it to continue stinking, and I want to end up in a divorce. Do you want to get, do you want your marriage to get healed? Of course you do. Jesus is asking, how much do you want it to get healed? How much do you want this? How much do you want your marriage to be fixed? He's asking the person who's disillusioned, disenfranchised with their relationship with God, do you want your relationship with God to get better? Of course I do. How much do you want it? How much do you really want it? you really want it. 
Because Jesus understands something. He understands that in order to want something, in order to want healing, in order to want to get well, you have to be sick of being sick. Because quite frankly, a lot of us are okay being sick as long as we don't have to pay the price in order to get well. What does that mean? Uh, Our daughter, Manny, our oldest one, has been complaining that her eyes are blurry, right? She can't see very well. And so we said, okay, let's go to the eye doctor. Went to the eye doctor. He said, okay, you're going to take an eye test. She says, is it going to hurt? It's not going to hurt. So everything that the doctor says needs to be done. Okay, you, you're gonna, we're going to have to turn out the lights. Is this going to hurt? It's not going to hurt. Okay, the next thing we have to do now in order for us to really see if there's anything deeper going on is we have to dilate your eyes. Is that going to hurt? No, all we're going to do is put a few eye drops in your eyes. Is that going to hurt? What is she saying? She's saying, I want to get well. I want my eyes to get well as long as it's not going to hurt me. Because Jesus understands something that he's trying to communicate to this person. In order to get well, there is always a price that we need to pay. And the question he's asking is, are you willing to pay the price in order to get well? How much do you desire to get well? I know you want to get out. You've been in debt for 38 years. You want to get out of debt? Of course I want to get out of debt. But are you willing to change your lifestyle in order to do that? Are you willing to not keep up with the Joneses? Are you willing to let them go and buy the things that you want to have? Are you willing to be okay having an iPhone 5 instead of an iPhone 7? Are you okay with these things? Are you okay changing your lifestyle in order to get well? Are you okay with that? That's what he's asking. I understand that you want to get healed. I know you want to get healthy. I know you want to drop that whatever weight you want to get in order that you can be healthy. But are you willing to change your diet? Are you willing to exercise? Are you willing to put in the effort? Do you really want to get well? We only get well, guys, when we're sick of being sick. And so the question Jesus is asking is, do you really want to get well? It's not as dumb as we think it might be. And actually, it's actually the most profound and powerful question that he could ask this man. Do you really want to get well? What does wellness look like to you? Maybe it's a healed relationship. Maybe it's growing in your relationship with God. Maybe it's a joy that has been elusive for all of your life. Maybe it's to overcome an addiction or a sin. Jesus says, do you want to get well? And the question you're hearing, you might immediately answer, of course I want to get well. But he says, how much do you want that? How much do you want to get well? Because there was a certain cost and a certain benefit in order for this paralytic to remain where he is. Nobody ever expected anything from him. He never had to go out and get a job. He would just sit there and beg, and people would walk by. They'd feel sorry for him. They'd drop food on his plate. They'd put money in his, in, his, in his tin can. No one expected anything. He always had a ready excuse for why he was like this or was like that. He never had to answer to anybody. There were no expectations placed on him. In order for him to say, yeah, I want to get well, means he had to take ownership for his life. He had to get up and get a job. He had to live differently. All of a sudden, people aren't going to give him sympathy. He can't get handicapped parking anywhere. Whatever the things might be, he has to change his life. And Jesus asked, are you really wanting to get well? The first step in healing is we get sick of being sick. Change only begins. Yeah, there's a price to be paid for our healing, but change and healing only begin when the price to change, the price to heal. But when we realize that the price, the cost of staying the same is greater than the cost to change. That's when healing actually begins. 
There's a price that we pay to stay a paralytic. There's a price that we pay in order to heal. Change in healing comes when it costs more to us to remain where we are than it does to actually change. What do you want? Do you really want to get well? Do you really want to get well? Are you sick of being sick? I have a friend who's a counselor. He's the best counselor I know. I've I've, uh, recommended, referred many people to him. His name is Brad. He's great. Uh, He counseled me for many years and led me through some some very challenging places in my life. And I've talked to him about different people in our, uh, that I know. I said, you know, do you hear hear some of the issues? What do you think? And he'll say, you know, they they really need help. They really need someone to talk them through different things. They need someone who's going to walk with them for the long haul in order to work through their issues. So I'll make a connection, make a referral, and the, the going rate is 150 120 bucks, whatever it is an hour. I can get them down to $50, he'll say. And the person will say to me, you know, I, I don't have $50 a week to give. I don't. And so when I talk to people like Brad or talk to other counselors, this is what they say. They say, if I felt the pain that they do right now, then by the grace of God, if that meant I would eat water, bread and water for the next four months of my life, I would do that because their healing is that important. It's that important. How much do you want to be healed? How much do you want to be made well? We can give a thousand reasons for why we don't need to. But change and healing only begin when we're sick of being sick. That's the first thing. The second thing, second thing that we see, that change is only possible when we stop blaming others for our situation. Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? Look at, look at his response. Verse 7, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. What is he saying? If you look at this passage, you'll realize that there's a verse 3 and there's a verse 5, but there's no verse 4. And verse 4 is not there. If you look at the bottom of your Bible, it says there's a verse 4 down here. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. First one into the pool after each, after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease he had. This is what he's talking about. So John didn't write this. That was not part of what he wrote. Probably later editors wrote it in to try and explain the context of what's happening at the Pool of Bethesda. But this was the dominant thought. At the Pool of Bethesda, okay, there was these waters. And every now and then, right, in these waters, in this spa, in this water, uh, there would be a, a rising and a falling of the water. Right? Just kind of a natural process that happens. But the thought in those days, it's, it, the thought in those days was when the water begins to stir like that, It's because an angel is visiting that pool and stirring it up. And so they thought the first person to get in the pool at that time is going to be healed. And so all of these people, John is not agreeing. He's not saying that's true. He's just saying that's the way people thought there. And so people would be thinking, waiting for the next stirring of water, waiting for the next jackpot to come, hanging out, longing for a false hope that could not satisfy. And so as he's waiting for the water to be stirred up, obviously he's paralyzed. And obviously when the water stirs, those who have greater mobility are going to go into the water first. And so when Jesus says, listen, you are in the presence of the healer. Do you want to get well? His response 
He doesn't say yes or no. He says, sir, I have no one to help me. Whenever the water gets stirred, somebody else beats me to it. He's saying, I can't do anything about it. Because these other people keep on getting there ahead of me, so I can never find my healing because of everybody else. I'm a paralytic, and it's their fault that I remain in this condition. If he continues in this way, he will never find his healing because unless he realizes that he's got an issue, he's never going to seek the answer. Like if you're, a, if you're a coach for a basketball player who has all the potential in the world, he could be great, but he's never willing to put in the work. And so you say, dude, you could be so good. You just got to practice. You got to train. You got to give yourself to it. He says, what are you talking about? I'm the, I'm the greatest ever. I'm the best basketball player ever. How come you can't make a basket during the game then? It's like, I'll show you tonight. I'll show you at the game tonight, coach. And so he gets in the game and he starts out. He misses his first shot. And he looks over at you and he's like, coach, I was fouled. Somebody fouled me. You're like, there's nobody. You're all by yourself. Ain't nobody around you. How could you have been fouled? He's like, man, that, that person fouled me. I don't know where he went, but he fouled. The next shot he, he misses. He's like, man, that referee, he didn't blow up the ball enough. It's too flat. I can't bounce. I can't get a handle on it. The next shot he makes, he's like, ah, these shoes are too tight for me. Switch out my shoes. I don't know why my mom bought me these shoes instead of those other shoes. The floor is too slick. The janitors aren't doing their job, making all kinds of excuses and blaming all these other people. Should have passed the ball better to me. I don't know why you can't pass the ball. That's why I can't make the shot. Unless he realizes that the issue is not with other people, he's never going to realize that he's the one who needs to practice and get better. The same thing is true with our healing. Some of us may not wear the brokenness outwardly like the paralytic. And everybody looked at the paralytic. Hey, that man is paralyzed. And he said, yeah, I'm paralyzed. But the reason I'm paralyzed is because of everybody else. It's their issue. It's their problem. And we as humans are very good at doing this because it comes from our family tree. When sin entered the world, Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. Everybody started blaming each other. And we've become very good at doing that. The, the, the issue with that is if we keep on blaming other people, we never have to take responsibility. It feels good to do that because we never have to own anything. We never have to fix anything if it's always her fault or his fault. And this is what we do a lot. The reason I'm paralyzed is because these people won't let me get in. The reason why I'm angry all the time is because my parents treated me like garbage. The reason why I'm always upset and frustrated, the reason why I'm always quick to fly off the handle is because I've been disrespected at work all the time. And those people just can't, don't know how to treat a person. The reason I act like that is because my boss is so pushy and he's, 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 he's racist and he's sexist and all of these things. And that's the reason why I'm like this. The reason why I'm, I'm always sad is because these people have picked on me since I was a kid. The reason why I'm, I'm never, I'm never uh, able to be on time is because cars always cut me off in traffic and I'm always trying to, whatever it is that we say. I'm not minimizing the role that other people have had in our brokenness. We don't minimize that. And that's a huge part of our brokenness. But as long as the issue is always with other people, we will never find healing for ourselves. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's what he's saying. Do you want to get well? If you want to get well, how much do you want it? Because when all is said and done, even if 50% of the issues with other people, there's still stuff that we need to look at within our own heart. And he says, change only begins when you're sick of being sick, but also when you begin to realize 
that you got to stop blaming everyone else for your issues. The reason why I'm like this isn't always because these other people have done these things to me. This is what Jesus is saying, is we have to take ownership over the brokenness and over the, the choices that we make that keep us from finding the healing. And so he says, do you want to get well? If you do, how much do you want that? And are you willing to embrace that? Instead of blaming mom and dad all the time for what they did, instead of blaming teachers for what they did, instead of blaming a friend for what they did, that we begin to look at ourselves. What do I need to do? What is Jesus calling me to do? Because the third and final step, the healing, the last thing. Healing comes, healing comes when we believe, when we trust Jesus heals and we take him at his word. So here he is. You want to get well? I can't. Jesus looks at him and he says, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. What do you do? What do you do when you've spent all of your life trying to get well? Only to realize that nothing has been working. You know people like this, right? You know people who for 38 years they've had chronic pain in their stomach or they've had chronic uh, headaches or they've had chronic earaches, but they won't go to the doctor for whatever reason. I don't want to go. I don't want to see a doctor. What do you do when you've gotten to that place? Healing comes only when we get sick of being sick and we stop blaming other people for the conditions and we go. But what do you do? You go to the doctor. You only go to the doctor if you trust that they know what they're talking about and they have the power to give you something that can change. And so here's this man for 38 years of his life. He's tried to get up. He's tried to to pick up his mat. He's tried to walk, but it hasn't happened for all of his life. But Jesus comes to him on this one day. He says, get up, take up your mat, and walk. This guy who was so used to living a certain way, so used to just making excuses for his condition, there are no other words Except at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. Why? Somehow, in some act of mercy at the pool of Bethesda, this paralyzed man shifts his focus from his disability to his doctor. Somewhere along the line, he stops making excuses and he looks at the expert. He moves from his failure and looks at his physician. What do you need to do in order to be well? You need to stop looking at yourself and stop making excuses. And you look up and you believe that Jesus can heal you. He moves from his sickness and his sadness and he puts his hope in his Savior and he says, I can do this. And so Jesus says, get up. It's the first thing that he says to do. He says, for 38 years of my life, I've tried to get up. I couldn't. But in one moment, he realizes that maybe something is different. That maybe today is different. And for the first time, he realizes that if this man is saying something, maybe he has the power to change me, to heal me, to make me well. And so he does something that he has not been able to do for the greater part of his life. And he gets up. Jesus says, take up your mat. Why? 
says, you take the symbol of your brokenness. Okay, you, take the ba- you take the thing that defines the hardest place of your life and you carry that. That no longer defines you anymore. You're not going back to this place. You're not confined to this. It does not carry you. You carry it now. This is going to be your story. Your mess is going to be your message. Your test is going to be your testimony. You're a different person. Do you believe this? You're not going back to that place. You're not going to lie at the pool of Bethesda anymore. You have no more excuses. You pick up your mat and you go as you take me at my word. What is the place of your brokenness that you constantly want to go back to? Jesus says, no, 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 we're not going back to that place anymore. We're not going, you empty out your, your, your alcohol bottles. You empty out your, your places that you go to to feed your addictions. You empty all that behind and you get up and you follow me. This is what he's saying. And you get up and you walk. Right? There's going to be no relapse. You don't go back to that place because you've been touched and you've been healed. As you move in obedient faith, as you pay the price for your healing, as you follow Jesus, as you believe that you can be healed. What is that price for you? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to let go of those things? What is the area of brokenness in your life that you need to be made well in? The things that you say, yeah, I know I'm like that, but the reason I am is because of this, that, and the other. And it's not my, it's not my problem, it's not my fault. Jesus saying, listen, at the house of mercy, you can find healing. You can find healing at the house of mercy, but you've got to own it. You've got to believe that you can. It's an an interesting thing. When this man, people knew him, 38 years of his life, he lived this way in this town of Jerusalem, and he's carrying his mat, and he's laughing, and he's singing, and he's dancing. The response of the people, what is it? To rejoice with him, to praise, to worship. They get angry. They say, it's the Sabbath. You can't carry your mat today. Because they had this silly rule that they had made up. It wasn't in the Bible, it wasn't in the Old Testament, but they had made up this rule that you cannot carry your mat on the Sabbath. Jesus could have healed this man on any day. Why do you have to do it on the Sabbath? He could have done it any day he wanted. Why did he choose this particular day? John doesn't talk about the great things that Jesus does and call them simply miracles. He calls them signs. This is a sign. Sabbath, six days of work. The seventh day would be a time for you to rest in order for your weary, tired body to be restored and made whole. For your weary, tired soul to be restored and made whole in the company of the saints. This is what the Sabbath was all about. Jesus saying, I'm coming to show you a small picture of what the eternal Sabbath will look like. There were all these people who were broken and hurting at the pool of Bethesda, but Jesus comes to one. Why? I'm just giving you a foretaste. Just giving you a sample of what will one day be. You walk through the mall food court and you get a sample. They don't give you the entire meal for free. They give you a sample to say, this is just a picture of what is to come if you follow me to where I'm going. And Jesus saying, this man's healing is just a tiny picture of the healing that will come for all who will follow me on that great and wonderful day. And Jesus slips out in the crowd. This guy doesn't even know who Jesus is. Why did he do that? 
The reason Jesus escaped was because he didn't want the crowds of people to swarm him, so Jesus escapes. And then he goes back and he finds this man in the temple. And he says, stop sinning because that's the greater issue. The issue at the end of the day, Jesus is saying, is not your sickness that I've come to heal. It's your sin that I came to save you from. That's the greater issue. Whatever that outer sickness might be, whatever people see, there's a greater issue underneath all of that. It's your sin. That's what I've come to release you from. That's what I've come to heal you from. That's what I've come to save you from. Are you willing to let that go? Right? That's not something that you can make excuses about. You can't blame other people for that. That's you. And there's a choice that you need to make. Are you willing to take that up upon yourself and to bring that to Jesus? Do you believe that he can bring the healing? Why did Jesus do this on the Sabbath? Because the scrolls of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 35 said, On that day, on the Lord's day, the lame will leap for joy. Jesus is saying, not only am I the great physician, but I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I came to give life in ways that Las Vegas slot machines, that superstitious fortune could never give to you. I am the great physician, and I alone can heal if you would come and believe that. And so immediately what begins to happen, it says in verse 16, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. There was a cost in order for this man to get well. What was the cost? He had to let go of everything that he laid, that he knew. He had to let go of everything that was familiar. He had to let go of 38 years of living a certain way. But the greater cost comes because from this moment on, because Jesus healed him that day, the Jews began to persecute Jesus. And in order for you to receive your healing, I'm going to take the beating. In order for you to enjoy your eternal Sabbath, I have to endure the momentary torment of hell in order that you might be made well. Because the same Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, Jesus Christ is the man of sorrows and it is by his wounds that we are healed. The question Jesus asks, do you want to get well? Do you want to be healed? He says, I want you to be made well. I want you to be healed. I want it so badly. Here's how badly I want it. I'll be beaten, mocked, scorned, so that you don't have to have any excuses anymore. All that they did wrong, I took upon myself so that you could be healed. By my wounds, you're healed. Because I was stricken, you could be forgiven of your sins. An ordinary day, like today, At the house of mercy, Jesus comes. And he asks each of us in our place of brokenness, says, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? How much do you want it? Let's pray.
Most of us are not like the paralytic who wears our brokenness for all to see. Most of us, the brokenness is hidden. Either it's an inner turmoil that others can't see, or it's a brokenness that we cover up with makeup, with a smile, with a quick, I'm doing fine, how are you? Below the surface, Jesus asks this question, do you want to get well? Aren't you sick of being sick? Aren't you sick of being, aren't you sick of constantly apologizing for why you fly off the handle and get angry? Aren't you tired of always going back to that broken well to drink from? Aren't you tired of giving into the same sin and addiction over and over and over again? You want to get well? Jesus said, I paid the price for your healing already. How much do you want it? Do you want to get well? Our brokenness, my friends, doesn't surprise Jesus. The brokenness of the paralytic didn't surprise Jesus. In fact, it was because he was broken that Jesus came to him. And it's because you're broken, because you're depressed, because you're hurting, because you're sad that Jesus wants to come to you. He doesn't run from our pain and run from our brokenness. In fact, our brokenness makes him come closer. So close that right now he's here. His arm around you and he says, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Do you believe that I can heal? Are you willing to take me at my word? To confess, to repent, to talk to someone, to find counseling, to begin to pray, to begin to hope, to begin to dream. Jesus says the first step to healing is here. I'm here. Not just a physician, not just a good physician, but the great physician who never fails. He's here with us now. If you want to get well, let's move to him. Let's obey. Let's surrender. Let's find beginning of healing. It's here now at the House of Mercy. Let's pray together for a few moments. We surrender our hearts to the Lord. just called him the paralytic. That's who he was. 
And I'd imagine that even after the healing, people didn't just go back to calling him by his name. They would still look at him. There's a guy who used to be paralyzed, healed by Jesus. Father, the reality of our lives is that we're not healed. No longer to ever think about our brokenness again. But the brokenness of our lives doesn't disappear out of our lives. It becomes part of our testimony. Whatever it is that people may define us by, he's the one who's always mean. He's the one who's always sad. He's the one who's always pointing fingers at other people. She's the one who's always hurt. He's the one who can't control his temper. She's the one that is addicted to these things. Whatever we used to be defined by, when we come to the healer, that no longer defines us. We're released from being defined by that, but it doesn't change the fact that we carry that broken place in our lives in order that from those wounds we would bring healing to others as a testimony to the transforming power of God. Father, we pray that you would come, that you would meet with each of us today. This ordinary, simple day would be the day that we encounter the great physician, that we might be healed to the praise and glory of your grace. Help us to not only believe that you can, but to trust that you will to move in obedience and then to live out our lives as a living and loving testimony because you have loved us first. We thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name.